Please take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 2, if you would, please. Romans chapter 2. In chapter 1, we were introduced to the fact that all mankind stands condemned apart from Jesus Christ as personal Savior. In fact, these first three chapters pretty much uh, give us an illustration as well as the powerful truth that we have a depraved nature and that we are all condemned outside of Christ for a place called hell. Thank God for Jesus. We also saw that the power of God is evidenced in the preaching of the gospel. Some of the things that are mentioned in these opening chapters of Romans, they're dealt with also throughout this entire book. So some things we will maybe not pay attention to at the beginning, and yet as we get to the points where they're really explained more in detail through this study, uh, we'll be able to address those topics as well. But it changes a person, doesn't it? The gospel does, from that of being a sinner to a saint. And it's so good to know that if you're in Christ, you're not really recognized by God as a sinner, but as a saint. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk around saying, hello, St. Michael, and hello, St. whatever, <laughs> you know. But uh, it, it does give us the basis and the foundation in our thinking and as our approach to life, to know that God's on our side and he's working with us and we're part of his family, amen? We also saw that there is a witness to all of mankind and there are actually two of them, but in chapter one, the witness is creation. It's clearly mentioned to us. The second witness that is mentioned here is in uh, chapter two. And we want to address that in the message uh, this morning, which is, of course, the conscience of man. I've outlined the following chapters this way, and we will go into chapter 3 since it deals with the subject of the depravity of man. And number one, we find the conscience of man is mentioned in the first 16 verses, and we'll address that in more detail in just a few moments. We have the citizen Jew mentioned in chapter 2, verses 17 down to chapter 3 and verse 8. And then we have the condemned race, which is chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. Then we have the law that convicts and condemns in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And then we have the availability of the cure, which is found in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. There's a popular soul winning methodology out there that is called the Romans Road. And I remember being taught that uh, as a teenager, and of course that was what uh, was used when someone led me to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ at that citywide crusade in Kansas City, Kansas, or Missouri. And uh, it starts with chapter 3 and verse 10 and so on. And so up until this point, it's real important, I believe, for people to have a real good view of their sinfulness, uh, so that we are struck with the fact that we are we are lost and in need of a Savior. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, is really weak today is uh, we don't like really addressing the sin problem. We like to gloss over that. Even uh, those that are lost and then those that get saved, we still don't like our sin to be pointed out and to be addressed. And that is because of the nature of the flesh and our enemy, the devil. And at the same time, he wants to keep us in blindness. He wants to keep us in darkness. 
He doesn't want us to see the light. And Jesus said he came and he gave light. He is light. And uh, if he had not come and given the light, then we would not realize our sinfulness. And so thank God for the word of God that uh, tells us where we are and uh, what he would like to do for us if we would only believe. Amen. And that's, uh, that's the beautiful thing about it is he doesn't just tell us the problem. He also extends to us the cure and the cure is sure for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. I want to address the conscience of man. I'd like to begin reading in Romans chapter 2, down from verse 1 to verse 16. The Bible says these words, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Now just to bring us back into focus to the context we find here that, you know, when you look at the end of chapter one, there are a lot of sins mentioned. And we brought out the fact that sometimes we are repulsed by some of the sins mentioned here. But then we look at some of the others that are mentioned as not being quite as, as bad. And we find here, as it says here, uh, that there are backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. We categorize those as not being as serious, but we are just as uh, in the same group with those sins as we are with uh, 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 the unrighteous, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, and whispers. And so the fact of the matter is we're all sinners. Regardless of how we might categorize uh, sin, we are all sinners. And that's why it says sometimes we, from our particular point of view, we'll condemn someone else and their sin, and yet we fail to realize that we're sinners as well. As it says here, uh, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impotent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work 
of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The conscience of man, no matter where we are in sin's spectrum, I guess you could say, we are all condemned before a holy God. And that is evident here in the first three verses of Scripture of Romans chapter uh, 2 here. Also we find in verses 4 to 13 that God is no respecter of persons. And that's something for us to understand because sometimes we have the tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves. And we actually say, well, you know, I think I'm better than so-and-so. I've actually had people tell me, I don't think I'm as bad a sinner as uh, so-and-so. And the fact of the matter is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so no matter the outward deeds, uh, the very nature of man is corrupt. And here we see in verses 14 and 16, as I just read, about the conscience of man, the conscience of man, and we see the power and witness of the conscience that is really given to God across the board to everyone. And so man has a witness in creation, but also each individual has the witness of their own conscience. Now, as the scriptures were saying back and forth, he was saying that the Jews, they have the word of God, they have a system of laws in place, so it was easy for them to say, hey, you're a lawbreaker. But the Gentiles did not have that same set of rules or standards. And so they did not have the law to condemn them as the Jews had a law to condemn them. However, God said they are still without excuse because they have a conscience. And they, every man and woman is born with a belief of some things being right and some things being wrong. It may not be confined to the scriptures. May, the boundaries may not be set from one culture to another culture, but everyone has their system of right and wrong. So there's a system of they, they have laws and rules that they go by for society, uh, be they different from one to another. However, they have a system of right and wrong. And so there is that conscience of man that actually bears judgment upon them. So that they know that they're not perfect. They know that they fall short. And that's the crux of the matter here in chapter two, chapters 1 and 2. Trying to let us know that there, there's no excuse out there for the realization that we are condemned and we're not perfect. And if only perfection can go to heaven, then we're all condemned uh, to, to eternity in hell. And so it's very clear there. I can remember when we think about the conscience, and maybe you can as well. Uh, I can remember, I've used this illustration in my, my class, my Sunday school class. Uh, I know couples, you probably never have sharp words one bef between another. But I can remember as, uh, uh, one morning I had a sharp word with Brenda. And uh, I got in the car and I, I drove into the office and I'm sitting at my desk and I'm trying to study and Nothing's coming together. I'm studying, and the Lord's saying, you need to call Brenda and apologize. And I, I was arguing with God about that. You never do that, do you? And uh, I, I was just saying, well, you know, I think I'm right, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm studying, and, and it, oh, you know, and nothing would come together. I was just sitting there just spinning my wheels. And so I 
swiveled around and I picked up the phone and I called her and I apologized, made the thing right. You know, making things right, that's sweet, isn't it? Feels good. And uh, I remember I hung up the phone and uh, I flipped on around to the desk, got into my Bible again, and everything fell right into place. But my conscience was bothering me, you know? And so uh, there was that system I did wrong and God would not let me rest with that. Now, maybe you have your own illustration in regards to that, but there I saw the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life and my conscience just going off with all the bells and whistles and the, <laughs> the poles coming down saying, no, 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 you're not going any further. And so uh, the conscience is such a powerful witness of what's right and what's wrong. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to a Bible illustration here in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 19, you may know this is a children's course. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed this way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. I spared you the singing. I gave you the lyrics. In Luke chapter 19, we see the power of a conscience. We see the power of a transformed life. It says this in verse 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. A publican is a tax collector. He says, and he sought to see Jesus. I guess this is a good time to be preaching a message like this. Amen? This is April. <clears throat> I digress. Verse 3, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house." And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We see that Zacchaeus uh, is an example of a transformed life as well as a transformed conscience. Because you see he was convicted about those, uh, the, the price gouging that he had given to people. See what had happened in those days. Many times a tax collector was given a certain area in which to collect taxes. And what would happen is the king or the ruler, the one who had jurisdiction over that entire area, he would divide that area up into sections and he would have publicans or tax collectors over that. And so he would allot a certain amount of money for each section. And so just for example's sake, he'd say, okay, from this area here, I want $100,000 every year. And this area here, I want $150,000 every year. So the tax collectors would then be in charge of turning $100,000 for that area over to the ruler. Well, whatever that man could collect uh, apart from that, uh, more than that 100000 that would be his. 
So a lot of these publicans were very rich because they would price gouge. And so whatever they could get over 100,000 in that area, they would keep for themselves. So the Jews hated the tax collectors, especially because they were also Jews. And because of that, they were hated even all the more. And so they felt like that they were taking advantage of their own people. And so that's why it's worded the way it is. And so when Zacchaeus trusts Christ as Savior, his life is transformed. He's got a new heart and he realizes, oh, you know, I've got to make some things right. And so he does and looks at restitution and says, you know, I have anything that I've taken that I shouldn't have taken above what I should have collected, then I'm going to, I'm going to restore them fourfold. So in other words, if I charge the guy an extra $400, then I'm going to give him four times that back. It's a pretty good deal. That's why Jesus said, wow, salvation has come to this house. But we see the power of a transformed life as well as a good conscience. Someone has written this. There is one judge that is always with you that either commends your actions or condemns them. It either pats you on the back or kicks you in the seat of your britches. This judge either gives you a soft pillow to lay on or a stone that crushes you to the point of even death itself. Someone else has said, because some have chosen to set conscience aside, it has become a voice that cannot be quietened, a noise that is deafening, and a pain for which no pill can deaden. The conscience is with you all the time. Webster's 1828 defines a conscience this way. It's an internal or self-knowledge or judgment of right and wrong, or the faculty, power, or principle within us, which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our own actions and affections and instantly approves or condemns them. Conscience is called by some writers the moral sense and considered as an original faculty of our nature. I liken the conscience to a governor as you would maybe think of a truck or a car, uh, usually every uh, car that you buy, I know the big semis, they have many times governors on them, which are set for a particular speed, and you can put the pedal to the metal, and you can have and hear that motor just a roaring, but it's not gonna go past a certain speed. It's set. And the conscience is one of those governors that God has placed in each and every one of us. Now for a Christian, our conscience ought to be geared and set according to the word of God. And so that's why you can't always trust your conscience because it is defiled. And the Bible talks about many different types of consciences. In 1 Corinthians chapter eight, it talks about a weak conscience. Some people who get freshly born again, they get saved, they become a babe in Christ. Depending on what system they come out of, they can be very sensitive to some of those things that held them in bondage when they see other Christians engaged in them. And like I mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you see a lot of the religious systems of that day would uh, give meat and they would offer it, they would offer a sacrifice to idols. Well, Paul said in that passage, he said, you know, we know that there are no really other gods but God. And so what would happen is, is some of these priests, 
that uh, would offer to these other gods, they would actually set up shop. They couldn't eat all the meat that had been offered to their gods. So they would come to the marketplace and they would sell this sacrificed meat for a discount. And so the Christians wanted to save money and they said, hey, let's go down the market instead of buying it for this amount. We can go here to where these uh, uh, priests are selling their meat offered to these idols and we can get it for a lot cheaper. And so people would do that. And Paul was saying, you know, there's some things though that people will stumble at. They, they said, how could you eat meat that had been offered to those idols? I mean, they were offered to demons. And so here you are, you're eating that meat. And so Paul said, even though it would be okay to eat that meat, you shouldn't do it because you will damage the weak conscience. You will hurt that new believer in Jesus Christ. Not everyone has the knowledge that you do. So rather than make that a big deal and a stumbling block, then you ought to give in. The stronger ought to bear the, the infirmity, the Bible says, of the weak. In other words, the mature Christian will rather give in something that he feels like it's okay to do, but because of the weak Christians that will stumble, they'll say, we're not going to do that. And so sometimes it's not always a matter of right or wrong. Sometimes it's a matter of, hey, will this offend somebody else? Then if I want to offend somebody, then I won't do it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and that's a weak conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 and 19 talks about a good conscience. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9 talks about a pure conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 talks about an evil conscience. And Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 talks about a defiled conscience. And then there's the seared conscience. And this is a, a dangerous part of the conscience is when a conscience is seared. Uh, searing is when you take like a hot item and a, a, a rod or something. Say you have a bleeding that's taken place and what they'll do is they will sear that wound. They will cauterize that wound and uh, it will seal it. And what it does though is it kills the nerve endings as well. So you're not sensitive to that anymore. A lot of times you, if you have a scar, you can poke a needle around it and you feel the pain, but you tap on that scar and you don't feel anything because the nerves have been damaged. Sometimes if you keep hardening your heart and your conscience, not obeying your conscience and being sensitive to that, what will happen is it will become seared where you won't feel. That's why people will throw in your face, well, I'm just not convicted about that. And what has happened is, is by the continual saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. After a while, the Lord says, seared. And so consequently, whether you can show them in the scriptures or not is not the, uh, the issue because they won't even listen because it doesn't bother them at all. In fact, the matter is, folks, uh, we ought to be very sensitive to the scriptures all the time because we stand uh, the danger of actually searing our conscience. And that's one of the detriments of living in a sin-cursed world and not staying in the Word of God and submissive, submissive to the Holy Spirit of God. We can sear our conscience. And so how does the conscience work? If you take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 9, verse 1, we see that the conscience witnesses for us or against us. In Romans chapter 9, in verse 1, it says this, I say the truth, Paul writes here to the church there in Rome, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness 
in the Holy Ghost. And so it bears witness for us. It bears witness against us. We also see that here in chapter two, those first three verses of scripture that we read earlier. Not only does it witness for or against us, it passes judgment on us. Take your Bibles again and go to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. It's good to hear pages of the Bible turn. That's good. In John chapter eight, we'll begin reading here in verse one. And this is an account about the woman taken in the very act of adultery. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. Verse three, John eight. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said, say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. I mean, there's been a lot of conjecture as to what Jesus must have written there on the ground. No one knows. The Holy Spirit of God did not see fit to tell us. So that means we don't really need to know. But he says this, so when they continued asking him, verse 7, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Look at verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning to the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine, those, those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He was not justifying the sin. But what he was doing is he was showing those men that they were sinners as well in need of a Savior. And so he was saying, obviously, woman, uh, you know, I'm not condemning you, but you need to go and sin no more. Evidently, she was putting her faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, realizing his forgiveness. And here we find that he says, uh, neither do I condemn thee. But notice those men, they were convicted by their own conscience. And so we see here that it passes judgment, the conscience does, passes judgment on us as it did to these men. And so how do you have a clear conscience? Okay, how do you have a clear conscience? Number one, let's go to Hebrews chapter nine. This is important because every single one of us have a conscience. And so this ought to be an important message for every one of us in dealing with our conscience. In Hebrews chapter nine, I'll begin reading in verse 11. And here I want us to see that we need to have our conscience purged. That means it needs to be cleaned out. And here it says here in verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. And now this is uh, Hebrews nine, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place 
having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So here we see that salvation actually purges the conscience. And that's the starting point. You, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, your conscience now has a new set of boundaries that's established. You've got the Holy Spirit that aids. You've got the Holy Spirit they have the Holy Spirit that aids as well as the conscience of man who's been reprogrammed, so to speak. Now it comes to the fact of Romans chapter 12 of renewing our mind, that it might be what, transformed. That means crossed over. And then so how do you have a clear conscience? You purge the conscience as well as you present your conscience to God. You present your conscience to God. How do you do that? Say, Lord, I want you to guide my life. I want you to reestablish what's right and wrong in my life. I want to be sensitive to your word, to your leading, to your guidance. And of course, we look at passages of scripture like Hebrews chapter four and verse 12, that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So there you have the three parts of man, the spirit, the soul, which houses our mind, will, and emotions, as well as our bodies. The word of God will, uh, will give that circumference of totality of the sensitivity of God's word to, the, to mankind. And so it makes us sensitive to what God wants. And of course, the Holy Spirit of God will never lead you apart from the word of God. It always works in concert. So somebody say, well, I think the Holy Spirit of God wants me to go out and get drunk. Wants me to party with people and not stick out like a sore thumb and make people feel welcome and so on and so forth. Well, no, that's against scripture. Because the scripture says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And so we see that the Bible is not going to contradict uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict what the Word of God says. And so it works in concert. And that's one thing that's helpful in keeping us on what we would call the straight and narrow. So here you find you need to present your body a living sacrifice. So you present your conscience to God as well. And that should be something that you could do uh, in, a, in a, a deliberate way where you go to the, the throne of grace and you say, God, I present myself to you. I present my body to you. I present my conscience to you. I want to be guided by your Holy Spirit. And I want you to put the governor that you've already established in my life to be more sensitive to your will. And so how do you keep the conscience clear though? And I guess you could say, how do you keep it clean? Number one, if you're taking notes, live your life first and foremost before God. Live your life first and foremost before God. 
Sometimes we do things because we're with a certain type of people. Maybe a, a certain group. We'll do one thing, we'll act one way in this group, and we'll act another way in another group. And what we need to do is always live our life as if we're living it before God, because we are. It's that children's course, you know, that there's a father up above looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, mouth, what you say, you know, hands, what you do, feet, where you go, and so on. And so we need to be sensitive and to live our life before him. If we please God, it doesn't matter what everybody else says. And so that's our goal is to please God, bring honor and glory to him. It said, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So how do you keep a conscience clear? Because remember, uh, your conscience either accuses you or it excuses you or it honors you. And so you go to bed at night, what's your conscience saying to you? I remember God telling me that he was saved and yet he backslid, hit the bar scene. And he said that, you know, he would act like when he was in front of everyone else, just like he was having the greatest of times. But he'd go home and he had laid down in that bed and he said many a night he cried himself to sleep because his conscience got the best of him. And the conscience just always works on you. And so it's important, no matter who you are, that you have a clear conscience. And it's like Ari Tori said, it's a soft pillow to lay on. And so here we find to live your life first and foremost before God is one way of keeping your conscience clean. Number two, live your life taking care of offenses done to and by you. In other words, you need to say, Lord, have I offended anyone? Now, you may not know all the people you've offended. <laughs> you may not know that because of the fact that you go on with life, they go on with life, and you don't know all that. But what you need to do is ask the Lord, Lord, uh, bring to mind anything or anyone that I need to get right with. And then uh, obey that. And you keep those short accounts with God. So you live your life taking care of offenses done to you and by you. You may have caused offense, but also you need to make sure that you deal with the offenses done to you. <clears throat> what I mean by that is, is people may offend you. They may say mean things, do mean things. They may hurt you in some way, take advantage of you in some way, and you need to practice forgiveness. And you need to lay that to rest. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so you need to remember that passage of Scripture in Romans 12. And uh, he will take care of you in those matters as well. And it, it, you, you, can, you can turn that, all, that situation all over to him. Say, Lord, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want it to deal with me. I want to give it to you. And so you give it to him. Now, when the devil or your, your uh, defiled conscience tries to reseat that in your mind and heart and get you dwelling on that, you just give it right back to God and say, God, we took care of this. And so I give it back to you, and then you think on something else. Practice Philippians 4.8. So live your life taking care of offenses done to you and by you. If you're taking notes, write Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, because we see that Jesus did the same thing. Then number three, live your life honestly. 
Live your life honestly. And what I mean by honestly, I mean transparently. I mean, be who you are. Amen. I'm not talking about in your sinfulness. I'm talking about in your rightness. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm, on, I'm already here in Hebrews. And I'll just turn there real quick like in chapter 13 and verse uh, 18. He says this, and I, I believe this is one of the, some of the wording that the apostle Paul uses and so that's why I believe that one indication that I believe that, he, uh, that uh, Hebrews was penned by Paul. He says, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. And so that should help you too as you do business, as you interact with other people, that you always be honest. That's a, so that's an easy guidepost for you. I'm just going to be honest. Honest. In my business dealings, I'm going to be honest. Live honestly. So live your life honestly. That will help you have a clear conscience. You don't have to lay down at night and say, you know, I ripped somebody off. Or, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that cash, uh, cashier gave me too much money and I pocketed it and said, hey, I just got a bonus today. You know, that kind of thing. It, you need to be sensitive. And you just say, I'm just going to be honest. If they overpay me, I'm going to take care. I'm going to take it back to them. I'm going to take the overs back to them. I'm going to be honest about this. And so on. Live your life honestly. You'd be surprised what a powerful testimony that would be as well. And then number four, live your life enduring life's injustices rightly. Remember Jesus said these words, offenses will come. You're going to get offended. It's a part of life. You're going to get offended. How are you going to handle that? Get back at people? Cop an attitude? I mean, you've got to learn to endure. Let's show you an example of one who did. Let's go to 1 Peter. You're almost there. 1 Peter chapter 2. And in verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience, conscience toward God endure grief, suffering, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You want to please God? Just take it, turn it over to him, let him handle it. Chapter 3, verse 16. He says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evil doers." They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now there's a whole context here. But one of the powerful truths about this is, is that sometimes when you're done wrong, you never see the right really made right in this life. But that's not the problem. Because God says here that, it says here that, uh, they, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. This is not the judgment time yet. There is a judgment waiting uh, for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. When the rapture takes place, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have the judgment seat of Christ while the tribulation time has taken place down here. And so the wrongs amongst believers are going to be right there. Now when you think of the offenses done by the unsaved, well then we have revelation that takes care of that in chapter 20 verses 11 to 15. 
And that's the great white throne judgment. So no one's going to get away with anything. And so it's best just to let God take care of it. Amen? Just turn it over to him. And that way they'll, there'll be a day, if they don't make things right, that they will be ashamed before the judgment seat of Christ if they're saved. And it will be condemned before them there at the great white throne if they're lost. So here you need to live your life enduring life's injustices rightly. Rightly, that's the key. Where you handle the wrongs done in the right way. Because it will happen. And then it says, number five, lastly, here's a good way to have a clean conscience is close your day by taking inventory of the day's events. Close your day by taking inventory of the day's events. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139, Verses 23 and 24. This is a great way to end your day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You pray that. And you take care of anything and everything that the Holy Spirit of God brings to your mind at that point, And you can go to sleep. And be at rest. And then you need to accept God's forgiveness if it's something that you've done. And you accept God's forgiveness by claiming 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you ask God to forgive you, he forgives you. If you've repented of what you have done, which means you change your mind, what that also means is you simply agree with God in regards to that action, that thought. You, you agree with him and what he has said. And you say, Lord, I agree with you. I've done wrong. I've sinned. Please forgive me. And what does he do? He forgives. And then he says he cleanses us. So if he's forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself and you need to forgive the other person and let it go and let God take care of it. And don't allow the devil to reseat those thoughts in your mind or you walk around all defeated and say, I can't believe I, you know. No, you're forgiven. True. You may have to live through some consequences, but that doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. David had to live through the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, with killing Uriah, but at the same time, he claimed God's forgiveness. And even though there are consequences until the day he died, all the testimony of God to all of us and mankind, that David, by his own generation, it says, he served God in his own generation and fell on sleep. In other words, he was, he was clean before God. And you can be too. Thank God for the conscience that God has given you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, your conscience is already telling you things that are right, things that are wrong. And so what you need to know before God is that you're not perfect 
You need a savior. Because only perfection can enter into heaven. Only that which is perfect could be a sacrifice. That's why the law is always thrown up here in these passages of scripture. Because no one can keep the entirety of the law. We all fall short. We're imperfect keepers of the law. And so if you're guilty in one part of the law, you're guilty of the law. You're a lawbreaker. And God says, you need a savior. You stand condemned. That's why in the Old Testament, the lamb that was brought as a sacrifice had to be one without spot or blemish. Had to be perfect. You couldn't bring a crippled lamb. You couldn't bring one that had blemishes, some imperfections. It had to be perfect. And there only could be a perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Since men are all sinners, none of us qualified. No one did. And that's why Jesus came. And he gave of himself. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's why John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that's an illustration of forgiveness. Forgiveness means to send away. He takes your sin away. And so if you've never had Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin and come into your heart and save you, oh, you need to do that today. He is the perfect sacrifice. He died for you once for all. And he wants to save you. And dear Christian, we need to live in light of that perfect sacrifice. Amen.